was talking about the making of a king, the men and women around King David, into Israel's second king and one of its greatest kings. Um, the people around a king, a president, or any other leader, shape that person in uh, a thousand ways. Uh, sometimes for good, sometimes uh, not for good. And uh, I believe, because we are God's children, that means we are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we have royalties in us. Now, we don't always act like it, and so that's what we're going to be learning, hopefully, in a few weeks, the summer, how we can influence the royalty out of each other. I grew up with a, a, a hymn called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And for many reasons, I'm not going to sing it this morning, but I want to share the words with you. Oh love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may whisper fuller be. O life that follows all my ways, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, and in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seeketh me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. I feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall be. A cross that lifted up my head, I dared it not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall one day be. O love that will not let me go. There's an incredible story behind this old song about God's unfailing love. It's written by a Scottish pastor named George Mathis. George Matheson. He suffered poor eyesight from his birth, and at age 15, he learned that he was going to go blind eventually. Uh, refusing to be discouraged by this news, he enrolled in Scotland's University of Glasgow and graduated at age 19. He then began his theological studies because he felt God had called him to be a pastor. And it was while he was pursuing his theological studies that he went totally blind. The three sisters rose to the occasion. Now, this was at a time when women didn't go to college, let alone graduate school. But his three sisters decided they were going to help their brother get through his graduate school. And so they tutored him through his studies and going so far as to do what I would hate to tell. What does not come naturally to me, they learned Hebrew, Greek, and Latin so that he could finish his studies and they could tutor him. With their help, he was finally able to graduate and he took, uh, received a call to be the pastor of a church in Argyleshire, 
knows that on the day one of his sisters was married, Matheson wrote this hymn, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And he recorded this account in his journal. He wrote about how this happened. My hymn was composed on the evening of June 6th. I was alone. And today, I regret it. Something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn is the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. Apparently, Matheson had no desire for anybody to know what had caused him his severe mental suffering. The people who had revealed his life story are pretty sure that it goes back to a heartbreaking experience he had a few years before that. His fiancée broke up with him because she decided she just couldn't see herself spending the rest of her life with a woman. He never married. It seems likely that his sister's marriage and her wedding brought the memory of this woman who had burned him and the wedding he had never shared. His severe mental suffering inspired him to write this hymn that celebrates the reliability of God's love, a love that will not let me go, a life that follows all my ways, and a joy that keeps me in my faith. We all go through times of pain and discouragement. When I read that story, I read that story behind the, the hymn, uh, the sense that struck me was extremely important. Matheson said, the hymn is the fruit of my suffering. All of us suffer some kind of grief or disappointment or disability at some point in our lives. It's inevitable. If you're grieving and it hasn't happened yet, it will. As, as you already know about. The question is, can we still experience a love that will not let us go. Or is that reserved for people, you know, in the 1800s? We're in the 21st century. We have a lot more technology now. Is it still possible to experience a love that won't let us go? Can we even, can we, can we be the source or the channel for that kind of unfailing love? First answer we have to this to this question is whether we can still experience is to understand that God is the source of our failing love. He sets the example of how of a love that will not let us go. That's the love that George Matheson wrote about in his hymn. But he also empowers his people to share the love that stands true no matter what the cost. Songwriter the wrote these words: "May your unfailing love rest upon us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. May your unfailing love rest upon us as we put our hope in you." This morning we're going to be looking at the story of Ruth. Ruth, why Ruth? Okay, I'll explain Ruth right away. Ruth. David, 
great-grandmother. One of the ladies who surrounded one of the women who escaped becoming king. The making of the king. Ruth was his great-grandmother. Her story demonstrates how God's unfailing love combines with the human love that won't let go and won't give up to change the course of history for a family, for a nation, and ultimately for all humanity. So, let me just recount the story. It's either that or read you the entire book and explain it to you. One of the things. But let me just tell you the story. It begins with a very simple, normal world. Everything's going well. Naomi. By the way, Naomi's name means pleasant. And although the book named after Ruth, most of the talking's about Naomi. You'll find some quiet in there. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, was at home with her husband, her two sons in Bethlehem. Life was wonderful. And there's a little hint of trouble because famine comes and the family is forced to move to Moab, a neighboring country. Now, we understand that. A lot of people have moved to Michigan. And famine, well, not approved. Jobs. They're going down to the Carolinas. And we understand what that's like. You all have other people you may know have. Not everybody left Bethlehem, but Naomi's family left and they went to Moab and they established a new normal. They, they set in, they settled in, and they became part of the community they were living in. And Naomi's sons grew up and they married Moabite women. What happens? You, you meet them as they grow up in their families. It's the normal flow of life. But trouble comes, even in Moab. You know, we turned to that. But she still has a sin. It kind of reminds me of uh, one of my favorite lines from the great theologian Jerry Conswell. You know you're in trouble when they tell you. That's all you got to do. Here we are in trouble. Uh, but she had her sons. You know, we have her sons and, and her daughters-in-law. And it's important because in that time and in that society, there was no social security. There was no there was no government aid. There was if you had no family, you had nothing, and you weren't going to have your house very long either. You had nothing. There was no support anywhere outside the family. But she had her sons. It was their responsibility to take care of them. But then a son died. No son. Foreign country. No family. No income. No support. And the two daughters-in-law did not have the sense to go home to their own country. They just stayed with them. 
Now, if that's not something to keep you up at night and worry about how am I, you know, it's not bad enough I have to worry about how to feed myself, I have to worry about how to feed these two girls.
to stop and reach back. But it's a hint of hope because it's part of the fun. Now, there wasn't any governmental assistance, there wasn't any welfare, there wasn't any social security, but there was a tradition among the farmers, and that is that they would allow people to come to their fields after harvest and dream. They could collect whatever the harvesters had dropped. Not in the days where the combine rolled through and there was nothing left but shovel. It was all done by hand. You had to cut it off, tie it up, and sell things to drop. There were two things you could do with that. One was go back over the field and pick up everything you had dropped. The other was to be kind to those who had much and say to them, you can go into my field and pick up what's left. Just follow along behind me. Pick up what harvesters get. And so, Ruth, with Naomi's permission, just goes out into the field to do some gleaning. So they'll have a little food for food grinders for barley harvest time. And so she goes out and she just covers. happens to end up in the field of a man named Boaz. And by the way, Boaz has an interesting family history. His mother's name was Rahab. She was the innkeeper slash prostitute in Jericho to give the spies to Joshua in his being time out. And she was a Joshua's Boaz has money. Boaz has fields. Boaz has a sharp eye. Because he comes out to his fields and he sees somebody who's not seen before. And he's working harder than any woman he's ever seen. He has this family on target, on focus, on task. He's collecting what he says that and he's not seeing anything. Who is this? And someone said, oh, that's Ruth. She came back from Moab with Naomi. And Naomi's her mother-in-law. I'm just going to give you a fast forward. I'm pretty sure the light bulb went off in Boaz's office. But he had an idea. An idea just went through his mind really fast. She's one of my favorites. And this is one of my favorites. But we're still. And so, Boaz says to his workers, She's following you. She's shopping on purpose. What box? Drop the grain on purpose. Oh, 
pick it up. I get it. And he says to her, he goes over to Ruth and says to Ruth, I understand that you are the only child. She goes home with the truth of the society. I'm glad she's going to come and start to get all this. I went out to the field and this guy is Boaz. Boaz. I know that. In that time, they had a, a, a tradition called the Ten Hundred Years. It was a responsibility. Remember, I told you, family, if you didn't have family, you didn't have anything. Family went a long way. In fact, the closest family to you was responsible for your behavior. So before you your well-being. If you lost everything and you had an uncle, your uncle's responsibility was to take care of you. If your uncle was gone and you had a cousin from that uncle, that cousin was that that cousin's cousin 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 thirteen times in the mood with your closest relative, that person was to be your kinsman redeemer. If you were in trouble that person, no matter how far distantly related they might be, is responsible to take care of you. One of the ways they did that was to purchase the property that had been in your family's name, taking it and use it on behalf of your Naomi's case, on behalf of her husband and her son, so that when they had children, that land would be returned to them. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. However, at the end of the barley harvest, Naomi says to to Ruth, "You know, I got an idea. I have an idea how we should do this. Boaz is a good friend. My friends." Bob and, and Cheryl Moeller have a, a, a whole seminar they do for, for single women called uh, Make Sure He's a Boaz and Not a Bozo. Okay, and, and they only, I don't know if you've been to the seminar, probably not even, you know, so much time is gone. But Naomi knows this is a Boaz, this is a man who's got it together, he's got money, he's got a home, he's got. He's a hardworking person. He's honest. He's responsible. I have a plan. Take a bath. You've been working hard. Go get some of the whatever little perfume you've got left. And get your best dress. 
right after the party is over at the end of the party. Boaz is doubting. He's out there and they don't have it. I, if you want to know something, I have a really deep curiosity about what really goes on. When a woman goes out in the middle of the night to a guy who's been drinking, Whole fast a blanket and crawls in bed with him. Now, I don't know what happens on all the TV shows, but I'm told in Bible they didn't do that stuff. And I'm going, that's how we get here. Somebody had to do that. I don't know. I'm told that was a perfectly normal way for a woman to say to a man, I want to marry you. I'm going, okay. But I'm not comfortable. I don't know what happened. Someday when I get to heaven, and if I remember the question, I'm going to ask it. What really happened? But here's what happened when Boaz realizes that he realizes that he's knowing something besides what he knows. He looks over. I got no visible means of support. You're my friend. And he says, okay. The problem is that somebody's closer. You're a wonderful woman. I would be honored to be your husband. And he gets this close. Thank you. 
if we have to live in a hole in the ground, we will live in a hole in the ground together. If we die, we die together. If we fail, we bury, we're buried together. If we're going to worship, we're going to worship together. Where your people are my people. And if that's all, somewhere along the line, Ruth experienced an unfailing love.
in our deepest, darkest, most secret hurt, we felt the power of Jesus Christ. What would we act like if we truly believed that God loves us with a lie? This is a song for my ears. That doesn't really seem to me, but songs I knew that well. Of course, it goes like this. I am love, and I am love. I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best, loves me most. I am love. You are love. Won't you please take my hand? We are free to love each other. Said if you knew me, you would know me. My stars are hidden by the things I wear. He said, My child, my stars are you. It was love for you that took me there. Second verse, forgiven. I repeat, I'm forgiven. Seen before my Lord, I freely stand. Forgiven, I can dare to love my brother. Forgiven, I reach out to take your hand. I am love, I am love. I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best, loves me best. I am love, you are love. Won't you please take my hand? We are free to love each other.